0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. A title could be Money and Misery. Church, we need to open our Bibles. Church, you need to open your Bible uh, for several reasons. Let me give you one reason why. Why? One reason that you need to open your Bible on the regular is that you have a you have a highly practiced ability to know things that are not true. You have a highly attuned ability to be sure of things that are actually quite false. And the Bible has like a laser pinpoint ability to focus on these things and correct us. It is very often that when we open the Bible, God says to us in the Bible, hey, life is not what you think it is. And this and that don't work the way that you think they do. I sometimes picture if God was just gonna, like, I don't know, put his his hands out and talk to us, that God would maybe say something like this. You people don't know half the stuff that you think you know. And the half that you think you know just ain't so. We're confused about everything. And we tell ourselves stories that we like, but the fact that we like them doesn't make them true. We are mistaken about a lot of things, and one of the things that we're very mistaken about is money. Because we all know, we are all very sure, right, that the wealthiest are the best off and everybody would be better off if they were more wealthy. We are very sure of that, that being rich is way more desirable than not being rich. We are dead right about that all the time. The Spirit of God says, you don't know half the stuff that you think you know about something as common and everyday as money. As we read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, you'll observe as we read it that these things are mentioned. Riches, gold, silver, luxurious garments. I wonder who has the most expensive garment in here this morning and who shops at Goodwill. You know, the, the garments that he's talking about here, they probably literally had jewels embedded in them. And yet you'll notice here that the garments, the luxurious garments are moth-eaten and the gold and the silver is corroded and moldy and rusty and rotten. As you read this text, know that the, this is classified as a diatribe a rapid-fire diatribe. You say, what's a diatribe? You know what a diatribe is. When your dog did his business on somebody's yard and some little lady ran out that screen door and started hollering at you, that was a diatribe. I have been subjected, true, true, in this very building, in our little counseling room there, I've been subjected to several diatribes. Where I'm counseling somebody and telling them things that they don't want me to tell them. And I've been told plenty of times that of all the pastors ever in the world, I'm the lousiest. When someone is ushering a diatribe at you, these things happen. One, they tend to talk faster, not slower. Two, they tend to talk louder not quieter. And you will find that in this text. Of all, of the the entire epistle to the James, the shortest little staccato sentences are right here in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James 5, money and misery. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Here in this text, where James unleashes a diatribe against the exploitative, greedy, self-indulgent, wealthy. Uh, James doesn't lose his temper. James isn't out of control. He's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he is delivering a very true, very needed diatribe against the greedy, self-indulgent, exploitative, unjust, rich. Rich. Well, of a couple of questions we could ask of this text, maybe the opening question would be, well, are these rich people even Christian? Are they believers? Well, the word brothers shows up in verse 7, but significantly, the word brother is absent in verses 1 through 6. And the, the judgment to which they seem to be headed doesn't sound like the judgment uh, that believers would be headed to. And yet it is in James chapter 5 where James is addressing the church. So I asked the question, I guess I should answer it, are these people who's, who are described in, this ver- in these verses Christian? And my answer is, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the most honest way for me to answer that question is the same way basically my ministry week after week after week, I am addressing in this sermon the gathered church. So everyone here would count as in the church, everyone here would probably maybe profess to be Christian. But it is not the case that everyone here has really been converted and is really born again. There are always folks who profess Christ, but who do not possess Christ. Christ. In fact, our, our overall theme in this 18, 19, 20 year sermon series on James is that James gives us the tests of living faith. So we found in James chapter 1, what's the, how do we, if, if I profess Christ, how do I know if I really possess Christ? Well, James 1 says, you know that by what you're re, how you encounter trials in your life. If trials make you lose your faith and curse God, that shows that you professed, but you didn't really possess. But if trials strengthen your faith and form within you the beautiful character of Christ, then I can see that you really do possess Christ. And then after that, it was how we encounter sin and temptation and lust when it's conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's accomplished, brings forth death. And then we saw in James chapter 2, the difference between those who profess Christ and those who actually possess Christ is that there's, a, there's a, a, a partiality toward the rich, just like here in James chapter 5, and there's a mistreatment of the poor. And you can't really be in Christ if you're always partial toward the rich and, and you mistreat the poor. And then, then in James chapter 2 is where he says, you have faith, but your faith is like the faith of a demon. It, you don't really possess Christ. Then the biggest test probably is in James chapter 3, where he says it's your speech. Your tongue betrays you. You say that you are in Christ, but by your speech, I can tell that Christ hasn't taken up residence in your character and in your, in your conscience and in your heart. That in James chapter 4, it was that you, you don't trust God's providence. You just trust your own making of plans. And here in James chapter 5, we're back to this test of money. One way that you may prove that you really are a Christian beyond just calling yourself a Christian is you'll prove it with your money. How, how you spend money, even how you make money, if you're willing to cut corners and exploit and, and, and be unjust and fraudulent. Nothing reveals the heart like money. This is just what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. And verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, so simple and so stark, so bifurcated, Jesus says in Matthew six twenty-four: no one... Can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. James' denunciation of the greedy, exploitative, rich. When I first started looking at this paragraph, I was like, wow, this is a heavy diatribe. What's going on here? It's kind of a strange paragraph. But as I traced it through last week and the week before, I became convinced, this is, I don't think, an exaggeration. uh, This theme of the unjust acquisition and use of money is a central theme in the Old and New Testaments. It goes all the way through the Bible, all the way to Revelation chapter 18, where in the very end of the eschaton, that that, uh, Babylon and the merchants and the way they've unjustly acquired this stuff is a part of the final judgment. And it is all over the place in the law of God. It's all over Exodus, and it's all over Deuteronomy. There are so many laws in there about being fair, about paying the wages on time, about not defrauding, about how you can and can't loan money and, and what you can and can't charge and all these, this teaching about generosity toward the poor. And if you know the, the Old Testament, so you have the law in Exodus and Deuteronomy and then you have the prophets a little bit later on and this is how it works. Please don't get this question wrong. You have the law and then here's the question. Does Israel keep the law or break the law? Israel breaks the law. And so the prophets are so many diatribes against Israel for breaking the law. And pretty much any one of the prophets that you look at, the major prophets and the minor prophets, the the prophet is saying how unjust Israel has been, how greedy Israel has been, how Israel has exploited the poor and the sojourner and the widow, and God judges her for that. James' denunciation of the greedy rich of the exploitation is uh, all throughout Scripture. Isaiah has this unforgettable phrase in uh, his third chapter and 15th verse where he says, you are grinding the faces of the poor. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard and who spoil the poor. What do you mean by crushing my people? What do you mean by grinding the face of the poor? declares the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 3, verse 15. It shows up in uh, Zechariah chapter 7. I'm quite confident I can turn to Zechariah quicker than you because I'm a Bible professional. And if, if you turn to it on your phone, that's basically cheating and satanic anyway. I mean, actually turn there, like in the pages. Zechariah 7, the prophet again, lays into them for how they've mistreated the poor. Zechariah 7, verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments and show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard. What an image. Zechariah uses this valuable jewel to indicate how hard the greedy, luxurious, self-indulgent hearts have become. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came upon them from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I will not now hear them, says the Lord God of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they should not be known. Thus, this land is left desolate so that no one goes to and forth in it. Zechariah there says nothing less than Israel lost her land and was scattered among the nations because of how unjustly she treated the poor, the sojourner, and the widow. This text in James 5 is from from a long line of biblical texts indicating this same warning. And so it's a diatribe that we need to receive And it's a warning that we need to hear. This text corrects the way we think about money and how much of it we really need and what we ought to do with the excess. This text doesn't say, and the Bible doesn't say, that God hates money. This text doesn't say, and the Bible doesn't say, that God hates gold and silver. God actually created gold and silver. They were on the earth before, before the fall. In fact, it is God that gives us the blessing of the ability to work and make wealth. This text is not saying that you cannot have money or you cannot acquire wealth. But this text and texts like it say very clearly that you cannot uh, have money which is unjustly and dishonestly obtained And that you ought not have money in a greedy, self indulgent, God ignoring kind of way. The the rich in James 5 are not condemned for being rich, but they are condemned, verse 5, for living self indulgently. They are condemned, verse 4, for committing fraud. And being dishonest in their payments. And they are condemned, verses two and three, for hoarding their wealth in a way that neglected God and neglected the good of their neighbor. One commentator said, there is no sin in merely being rich. Where sin exists among the rich, it arises from the manner in which wealth is acquired, the spirit with which it tends to engender in the heart, and the way in which that wealth is used. So let's delve into this diatribe. We'll see uh, four, four features of this fierce diatribe. And this outline, and actually all the scriptures that I'm mentioning, they're up on the digital bulletin. If you don't get them down, you can always look them up later. Uh, So four features here in this ferocious diatribe that James gives against the rich. Number one, they hoard a lot. But in their hoarding, they are only stacking up evidence against themselves. They hoard many stacks of gold and silver and money. They hoard a lot, but they're only stacking up evidence against themselves. He says there in verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you. They'll eat up your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You'll recognize the Greek word there, actually. You have laid up treasure. That's the Greek word, uh, basically, thesaurus. It means to stack everything up in one place. A thesaurus is where we stack up all the words in one place. Here he's saying, you have stacked up all this money, but look what it is. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten and your gold and silver have become corroded. So what he's saying is even worse than that. He says that this will be, verse verse 3, evidence against you in the day of judgment. So here's what's happening. James is a master of irony here. He's saying you stacked up all this money because you thought that it would help you. Not only will those stacks of money fail to help you, those stacks of money will harm you on the day of judgment. That's how deep he cuts here in this diatribe. Listen to how Ezekiel says the same thing. This, the prophet Ezekiel, wow, what a poet. He actually has rich people throwing their money away in this text. Look at this. Ezekiel 7 verse 19. They are casting their silver into the streets, and their gold has become to them like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with their gold, for it was only the stumbling block of their iniquity. Wow. In Ezekiel 7, he says, on that final day, that money's not gonna help you. You'll throw it away from you as an unclean thing because you'll realize that it means nothing when you're facing the fires of hell. You think that stack of cash is gonna help you? It, not only is it not gonna deliver you but it may very well be the spade that digs your spot deeper into judgment. James is the master of the metaphor here. What a You ever know somebody who is just like great at giving insults? That's not a good quality in a Christian. James just, just lays these things on and he's so witty and so wise in how he does it because he says that the corrosion is speaking. The mold, the the moth-eaten parts and the mold and the corrosion is speaking. And this is what it says. There's all this hoarded gold and it's all corroded. And the corrosion on that gold is speaking. And it is as if the very mold on that gold is saying this. This woman who hoarded all this gold, this man who hoarded all this gold, the corrosion speaks and says, I, the gold, could have been used to get a coat for a shivering poor person that lives on this very street, but instead I just sat in this cellar. The rust and the mold speaks And it says, I could have been used to fund missions in Turkey, in Kenya, in Caberno Bucaria. But instead, I just sat in the basement as a monument to this woman, this man's greed. I just sat there. Why is hoarding a sin? Because it is worldly and it is selfish because it denies what Jesus has said. What Jesus says about money is not hard to understand. It may very well be hard to live, but it ain't hard to understand. What Jesus says about money is this, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus made gold and silver. Jesus doesn't hate gold and silver. Jesus allows people, even even. Uh, gives people the ability to become wealthy. Jesus doesn't hate wealthy people. What Jesus hates is is for wealth that he created to be hoarded in a Jesus-denying, neighbor-destroying kind of way. He means for us to use our silver and gold for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. In this vivid language here, James, following the words of Jesus, warns us about the lake of of fire, so to speak, eating your flesh like fire. What an image. You know, the, the hellfire language of the New Testament comes from Jesus. James is only borrowing this from Jesus. It is Jesus who insists repeatedly that hell is a place of conscious, bodily Eternal suffering. Jesus insists upon that. And I don't know what's wrong with the church and the world where we, we actually think it's healthy that we have outgrown the fear of hell. You show me a world and a church that has outgrown the fear of hell? That's a world that has grown far too big for its own good. It has no idea the disaster that awaits it. We need to recapture that. we Bible Church. Our mission to make and train disciples of Jesus is an urgent mission that is worthy of investing in because hell is real. The fires of hell, they're not, they're not metaphorical. They are more real than that fire feels when you put your hand on that red hot burner. They're more real than that, not less real than that. James warns us here, picking up the very words of Jesus, that all that we've hoarded will not deliver us in the day of judgment that's the first. What's the second? It's this, that they defraud the greedy rich, defraud those who work for them, but this will lead to their own bankruptcy in judgment. They defraud those who work for them, but this will lead to their own bankruptcy in judgment. This is verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. First, the mold and the rot was crying out. Here, the very wages that you withheld are crying out to the Lord of hosts. The social and economic conditions, I think it's easy to, under, it's easy to picture what, what these conditions were in the first century. The economy moved on agriculture and farming, but almost nobody owned land. One kind of fat cat owned the land. And I guarantee you that guy didn't put on his overalls and go work in the dirt. He just collected the money and all the day laborers, not dissimilar from the day laborers that we see right around here during harvest season, all the day laborers would show up and they would work. And then the landowner would have to pay those day laborers at the end of each day for the work that they did. But the problem was, if the, if the landowner kept back those wages, what could the day laborer do? He had no recourse. He had no power. He had no say. And so the greedy, exploitative wealthy just lined things up the way they wanted them and, and were basically deaf to the crying out of the poor. who who they owed money to because those poor people were the very ones who were working for them. The day laborers in the Bible times, they they did not know what a bank account was. And they did not live paycheck to paycheck. Some of you live paycheck to paycheck, like you get paid on the first, you get paid on the... They didn't live paycheck to paycheck. They lived by what was put in their hand when the sun went down that day. That day. That day. Like I work that day, I I, I labor with the, the sweat of my brow and my back muscles all day, and at the end of the day, that money that's put in my hand is what lets me get wood to keep my babies warm in my little house tonight. And that money that is put in my hand enables me to put some bread on the table tomorrow morning. You can't hold that back. From those who have labored for it, for their daily bread. You know, God's law is exactly, speaks exactly to this. Leviticus 19, verse 13 says this You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the next morning. God's law is so clear. I just, I think Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they get a bum rap. I think Leviticus and Deuteronomy are beautiful. I would love to live in an economic system that upheld what Leviticus and Deuteronomy say about the way that money ought to be made and the way that money ought to be spent. These are, these, th- this would be so healthy for our world. Listen to, it's so beautiful the way it's put in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Man, I love this. Listen to this. Deuteron- Listen to the dignity in this little economic law. Deuteronomy 24 verse 10 when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect your pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you made the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. What a th- what a thing for the living God to include in his law. To give that poor person who's on the hook to you to give them the dignity of their own house. And you can't just barge in cuz you're cuz they owe you the rent. You wait outside, and you give them the dignity to collect it and bring it out to you. The text goes on. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets so that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be your righteousness for you before the Lord God. What a God we have that he says, if I see somebody shivering like, it's, it's, God says, it's your righteousness before me that you don't cause that person to shiver more, but that you give them their cloak back. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in the land with your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on that money, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. James says that 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 wage that you're defrauding them of is crying out to the Lord, and James is riffing off that very text in Deuteronomy 24. And look what he says in James 5, verse 4. He says that the wages that you kept back are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So he speaks a, a hard diatribe against this defrauding that the wealthy defraud the poor. Third, here's a warning. In verse five, they live in luxurious self-indulgence, but this only fattens them for the slaughter. All the luxury and all the indulgence. They live in luxury and self-indulgence, but this only fattens them for the slaughter. James really gets to it in verse five. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That money is not going to help you when the judgment comes. In fact, it may only have fattened you so that you're chosen first out of the herd for slaughter. There's a challenge to us here in verse 5 to watch our luxury spending. The more we surround ourselves with more and more and more and more, The harder it is for us to hear God and to hear our neighbor. The less likely we are to cultivate that that trimness, that that of, of spiritual muscle. We just get fat. You know what I noticed in verse five? You ever notice this? Look at verse five. You have lived on the earth in luxury. You ever slow down like, well, ain't nobody living on the moon. Why did he put your living on the earth? Like, where else is he going to live? I listened to a podcast last week. This guy is like some kind of crazy genius. And Elon Musk was talking about how pretty soon we're going to live on Mars and like mine stuff up there. I'm like, I don't know if I believe it or not, but that guy is crazy smart. I don't know if we're going to end up on Mars or not. But James says here, you're living on the earth. Why does he say on the earth? Well, because a day is soon coming. James 4 verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You live now on the earth. You have stacks of cash on the earth. You have luxuries and you have a quote unquote great life on the earth and Your life on the earth is like that compared to what life really is. Don't you hear, church? Don't you hear the Spirit of God telling us all the stuff you think you know about money and life, that is not what life is, and that is not the way money works. We need to recapture what God in his good spirit says to us about money and life and no longer believe what the world gets us to think. If the life you live for is a good life only in this world, then you're leaving out what's most important about life. And finally, a fourth, in verse 6, they oppress the righteous, making themselves guilty of murder. They oppress the righteous, making themselves guilty of murder. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. James here fits this in with the Old Testament prophetic teaching about justice and about how the wealthy use their money to turn justice into injustice because they bribe the court system, they rig the system, and with their money, they turn justice into injustice, and so they get away with things that they shouldn't get away with. This is a a common theme throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And God consistently says that he hates the perversion of justice. The Bible is so filled with instructions about justice. And this is what God's word says. Leviticus 19 verse 15. Right next to that. It was Leviticus 19 verse 13 about giving the laborer his wages. This is what it says. Leviticus 19 verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. God says, you shall not be partial to the poor or be partial to the great but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Justice is justice, only if it is the same justice for the poor as it is for the wealthy. It's the same justice for the sojourner as it is for the native Israelite. God says over and over in his word, that's why I think Leviticus is beautiful, not boring, and it's desirable that our justice system would reflect that. Justice cannot favor the wealthy. Justice cannot favor this income level or this social class or this ethnicity or this preferred group. Justice to be justice has to be the same for everyone in the system. And so from this kind of barn burner of a text, this diatribe into the greedy, self-indulgent rich, can I just land with maybe four principles that... I'm going to take home and I would ask you to take them home too and just, just let them roll around in your mind and reconsider things. Principle number one, God hates fraud and exploitation and so should we. God hates fraud and exploitation and so should we. I think it's actually a, it's actually a, a part of Christian public virtue to want these predatory payday loan places to shut down because they are grinding the faces of the poor. I think it's a part of public Christian virtue that we would not support the lottery. The lottery is bankrupting the most needy poor among us. God hates fraud and exploitation, and so should we. Number two, God cares about the poor, and so should we. God cares about the poor and so should we. Church. Christian love. Church, Christian love is not a song. Christian love is not a sentiment. Christian love is not a slogan. How many times first John, for instance, James, for instance, Deuteronomy, for instance, how many times does God say, you you say that you love your brother? but giving your brother 20 bucks would say it a lot better. (laughs) We could say that we care, but we need to show that. We need to show that with our generosity. God cares about the poor, and so should we. Number three, Jesus didn't live life in luxury and self-indulgence, so neither should we. Jesus didn't live life in luxury and self-indulgence, so neither should we. This, this text is a good warning to us to be careful that we're not overly self-indulgent in, in the way that we use money. It's a, it, it is a danger that if we, if we get really, really comfortable, it's hard for us to be positioned to be on mission. Number four, money and pleasure can dull our senses to the urgency of the mission, the urgency of the end. Money and pleasures can dull our senses to the urgency of the mission and the urgency of the end. We we forget how real hell is. We forget how close we are to the precipice because we're so comfortable and we have everything taken care of like the guy that just stacks it up in the in the in the silo. Be careful that the good stuff of this world doesn't distract us from the coming judgment and from the urgency of our mission. Because church, we have we have a mission is to make and train disciples of Jesus. And this mission is worthy because Jesus is so worthy. He's the fairest of 10,000. To have Jesus is to have everything. And so it, this, is why the, this is why the mission is worthy. And the mission is urgent because hell is real. And we're delivering folks from those fires by making them into disciples of Jesus. So don't let money and comfort and luxuries dull your senses. Don't let them make you flabby. Let's stay the course because church Jesus is more valuable than anything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we bow before you, we, we ask that you would awaken us. We adopt uh, a way of thinking about money that's perhaps far less biblical and far more worldly than we ought to. So Jesus, awaken us, show us, help us to see. And Lord Jesus, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Oh Jesus, to serve money is a horrible, horrible master. To serve the opinions of people around us is all horrible, horrible, Master. But Jesus, to have you as our Master is to have the one who is gentle and whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. So free us up from the tyranny of other Masters that we may serve you with a light and a glad heart. Lord Jesus, hear your children as they pray. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org.